This episode of the Editor's Roundtable is brought to you by Brand South Africa. For a fresh perspective on South Africa's politics, economy, culture, people, and more, sign up for South Africa Now, a bi-monthly e-newsletter bringing you the most interesting stories about the Rainbow Nation. Register today at foreignpolicy.com slash south-africa-now. Very often the problem with these big meetings at the UN General Assembly is that they are not anticipating the problems of the future. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by David Sanger, chief national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. And a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the table is Kim Gaddis, who is with the BBC. She's covering the 2016 Clinton campaign and is the author of The Secretary, A Journey with Hillary Clinton from Beirut to the Heart of American Power. She was also previously based in Beirut, covering the Middle East for 10 years, and she writes frequently for foreign policy. Also, calling into the studio from Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Thank you, ER nerds, for continuing to submit your best ideas for podcast episodes. We love hearing from you, so keep them coming. You can't believe I'm reading this, right? You know, we love it. Keep them coming. I, I really don't care. If you don't want to keep them coming, that's fine. We have more mugs for us if you don't. Anyway, you want a mug, you send in an idea. If it's a good idea, we send you a mug. If you don't get it after a few weeks, you send us a complaining tweet. It's fantastic. Drop us a line at the ER podcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have an idea or a comment. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, guys... In the past week, we've had unga. This is a word that brings excitement to ER nerds everywhere. They imagine diplomats converging on the United Nations, solving the world's problems, giving soaring speeches, meeting in the hallways, anticipating the problems of tomorrow, solving those while they're at it, and then having a canopy. It's a it's it's an amazing image. And it has nothing to do with the traffic jams and jack shit that actually gets done there. Especially when it's raining. Especially when it's raining. And then nothing happens. David, what did you think of Unga this year? Well, there was one part of the agenda you just described that happened. They did eat the canapes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was about it. Uh, so let me make a confession early on. I've gone to every Unga of the, uh, of the Obama administration. I sat this one. I sat this one out. Well, you're entitled. Yeah. Why did you suffer through all of those? Well, because by the time you get to the eighth year of an administration, going and hearing a group of people from the administration explaining their great plans and visions for the future while they are calling back instructions about how to pack up their desks, it's a, there's a little something a bit jarring to that. That said, I thought the president gave uh, a very good valedictory speech where he described the world as he was leaving it. It sounded quite different than the speeches he gave uh, along the way. There was one unga where he actually devoted almost his entire speech to Mideast peace. 
He barely mentioned it this time. Uh, Syria got two lines, two lines. Imagine. In this speech. Imagine even Barack though, Obama trying to gloss over Syria. Even though his secretary of state was meeting morning, noon, and night trying to piece back together the deal that they struck 10 days ago in Geneva or 10 days before that in with, Geneva. With the Russians. With the Russians. Which was and going great, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it actually never, save for a few days of somewhat diminished violence, it then hit a point last weekend where the United States bombed the wrong place and killed 60-plus Syrians, followed up by uh, the Russians, if you believe the U.S. account, bombing a, a humanitarian aid convoy that had U.N. written across the tops of the trucks. Well, it makes it easier to target them. Yeah. And uh, the Syrians, as we speak, uh, resuming their bombing of Aleppo right after uh, Secretary Kerry had proposed a new sort of emergency kind of uh, proposal to save this ceasefire by suggesting that everybody get their planes out of the air. So far, by my count, only the United States has gotten its planes out of the air. So uh, I would say, unfortunately, at, by the end of this week of the UN General Assembly, uh, Syria was probably in worse shape than it was before the agreement in Geneva was signed earlier uh, this month. The rest of it wasn't terribly satisfying either. The Iranians uh, complained that the U.S. sanctions and European sanctions hadn't been lifted fast enough. A not entirely illegitimate complaint. Uh, the uh, Russians denied that they were responsible for just about anything. And the entire thing was overshadowed by this sort of growing tension between the U.S. and Putin's government. Well, excellent. We should come back to that. Kim, were you up there? Yeah, I was up there for a couple of days. Uh, I didn't see anyone eating uh, canapes. I'm sure that happened uh, as well. I wasn't, of offered, kind of I wasn't offered. What kind of journalistic training do you any, have? Any canapes, um, but I, 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 I think that she was going to better parties than we get invited to. Uh, David, oh, I, I think that very often the problem with these big meetings at the UN General Assembly is that they are not anticipating the problems of the future. They're trying to deal with the problems of today or yesterday that they have let fester. Uh, I think that what was noteworthy this time around at, um, at this gathering of diplomats, which was once described to me by uh, an American official as diplomatic speed dating, because you have to fit so many meetings into, into one day and one hour, is that there was the overarching theme, certainly at the beginning, of the world crisis in refugees and displaced people, 65 million uh, of them. There was a UN meeting chaired by Ban Ki-moon, which didn't um, yield much tangible results. There was one effort by the president himself with his World Leaders Summit to try to get some traction, some action on more tangible promises to uh, increase refugee admission by some countries, increase funding uh, for humanitarian support for refugees and displaced people by 30%, commit to educating 1 million refugees as well. You know, all of that is is very important. But it's not enough to try to alleviate the problem. Uh, the cost of doing that is, is, is quite high, but it is still less costly and less risky than trying to end conflicts. And as David just pointed out, there hasn't been enough effort put into 
doing exactly that, which is ending the conflict that are feeding this these refugee crises um, around the world. And the president, President Obama, uh, has not wanted to engage on the issue of Syria uh, since, you know, the beginning of the crisis. He has said this week that it is one of the problems that has haunted him most. But he gets a lot of criticism for not actually wanting to use... Um, the leverage or the power, including diplomatic power, that is required to really put an end to that crisis. You know, I was at a lot of different events, including one that was a joint event by the UNHCR, the UN, Refu- the UN Refugee Agency, and um, and the World Bank. As everybody's trying to figure out how do you deal with the global crisis of of refugees, and it struck me that the only reason why this has become an item on the the agenda of world leaders is because the refugee crisis has reached the developed world, has reached Europe. And it's because Syrian refugees have reached the shores of Europe that all of a sudden everybody is trying to figure out how do you deal with this issue when refugee crises have been around for a very long time. I mean, you have Afghan refugees who are still stuck in Pakistan for decades. You have the Palestinian refugees who've been stateless since 1948. You have refugees in Africa and displaced people. But it's really only because the refugee crisis has reached the developed world, Europe, that it has become a matter of urgency. And even then, you know, a lot of these promises are going to take two years to uh, to deliver on. So the sense of urgency is is not quite there. So, Corey, David said the president gave a wonderful valedictory address, then described a world in lousy shape. Kim raised him that with specifics, making the world seem even more in lousy shape. Did the president's address in any way ring hollow to you? Why, yes, David. Surprisingly (laughs) enough, the president's address did ring hollow to me, right? If you think about President Obama's first UN General Assembly speech at the start of, what was it, 2000, it was the autumn of 2009. Uh, one of the journalists, please correct me yep, if I'm that was it. with the facts. Um, what were the president's priorities? Nuclear nonproliferation, Palestinian peace, and we have the Iran agreement, that's positive, uh, I guess on nonproliferation, but North Korea is in a worse place. I I feel like what the president did with this valedictory UN speech was kind of pat himself on the back without uh, issuing a report card on how he's done. That it sort of seemed to me meh, right? That supposedly this was a UN General Assembly meeting all about refugees the president couldn't even get the cooperation at the UN to have the UN meeting be about refugees. He had to create his own separate next day refugees meeting in order to make greater progress. And even that doesn't look to me to have made any progress. I just want to interject to say that although I painted a very gloomy picture of where we are with with refugees, it is because, you know, it's an issue that I care about a lot. It's one that I've written about. But it is important to put this in context. This is not a problem that the world cannot deal with. This is not a problem 
that is going to overwhelm necessarily uh, the capacity of countries like the US or, or Europe to, to deal with it. What it requires is everybody coming together to solve it. This is not something that is beyond, uh, you know, not necessarily solving fully because that requires ending conflicts, but it is not something that necessarily needs to overwhelm the international uh, community, but it is one that is shaking the, you know, let's say liberal international order as as it's known in the West and as the US likes to uh, describe it and as President Obama described it. And, and it tugs at that, at that order by feeding uh, in many places xenophobic and racist attitudes and the idea to, you know, building up, building walls and closing up countries. But the international community has the capacity to deal with this if it really puts its its money where its mouth is. Well, the interesting thing, of course, as you said, is that the refugee crisis we are talking about is the million, couple million coming out of Syria going into Europe. Uh, the couple million that are elsewhere in the region we don't talk about as much. And the 60 million other displaced people in the world we never discuss. Now, you know, that's, I think, makes your point in stark relief. But, you know, I want to go back to Corey's point, which I, th I think is an interesting one, because a lot of the coverage was, you know, Obama gave a great valedictory and there he was. And, you know, as I said on a recent podcast, I think Obama has been a pretty good domestic policy president. And I think he's an earnest, well-intentioned man who's kept the White House free of scandal and he deserves a lot of credit. He broke a barrier that was important to break. But I also think his foreign policy record is rather weak. And the reason I conclude that goes back to what Corey was bringing up, which is the expectations he set at the beginning. And as, as she was talking, I was thinking, well, look, he, he made a Cairo speech in which he talked about improving relationships between the U.S. and the Islamic world. Uh, he made a Prague speech in which he talked about ending nuclear weapons in the world and making big strides against nuclear proliferation. He made an Oslo speech uh, when he won his Peace Prize, which looks all the more comical in retrospect, um, in which he talked about ending war and conflict and so forth. And as we look at that, I mean, you know, just grade him against the, the standards that he set. Uh, in terms of U.S.-Islamic relations, he might say, well, we've got a better relationship with Iran. But you might also say that we've got worse relationships with uh, the Sunni world and, and, and you've got a spread of terrorism and you've got a lot of tension in the U.S. and Europe because of the refugee crisis that has undercut that relationship. In terms of the Prague speech, in terms of nukes, we have the U.S.-Iran deal, which you mentioned. But Today, Pakistan has more nuclear weapons than it did when we started out. Uh, North Korea has uh, a nuclear weapons program that's gaining steam uh, as well as a rocket program. They, they, the Iranians are continuing along with their delivery program, with uh, their, their missile program. The Russians have continued along with their nuclear program. Nucle from a nuclear point of view, the world's more dangerous than it was. And then in terms of the war thing, I mean – you know, on the one hand, you say, well, he kept us out of Syria. And on the other hand, you say Syria collapsed and it produced region-wide conflict uh, that doesn't look like it's going to be solved any time soon. You have a refugee crisis that you didn't have. And you have the question of U.S. standing, which we was hired to improve. And whereas he 
undid some of the wrongs of the Bush era for which he deserves credit and helped the U.S. economy recover for which he deserves credit because that helps our standing. Uh, there are a number of places in the world where the U.S. standing has not gone up, particularly in places like the Kremlin, which we will get to shortly, where they have learned or in Damascus where they have learned or North Korea where they have learned or in Beijing where they have learned that they can challenge the U.S. and the U.S. won't push back. So the valedictory sort of sounded to me like play-by-play, you know, sort of commentary on the world as opposed to the speech of somebody who's actually supposedly been one of the leading actors on the world stage for the past eight years. Fair criticism or not, David? I think a lot of parts of that are, are fair, David. Let's run through. I think Cairo, Prague, and Oslo are actually as good a place to start a port card as any, and we'll get to Russia and China in just a sec. So in Cairo, I've got a little more sympathy, the Cairo speech, for him than uh, I think you do uh, and that Corey does because I think any president confronted with the Arab Spring and the backlash that came to it was going to watch their approaches be washed away. The year between the time he gave the Cairo speech and the time the Arab Spring happened, he went back to his staff and he was extremely unhappy. I report this in Confront and Conceal, a book I did about his first term. Fantastic book. Everybody should buy it. Hollywood should turn it into a movie. Uh, many movies, many movies. Um, but uh, he, he went back to his staff and said, how are we doing on mm -hmm. our Cairo agenda? And the answer was, not much. And by the time they came back with that answer, the Arab Spring had begun. Prague, I think you can lay the blame a little more here in Washington because the price of getting the New START treaty through with Russia was that the president agreed with Republicans on a nuclear modernization program that was not supposed to increase the numbers of our nuclear weapons, but was to make them last longer, be survivable, and so forth. And the nature of that program basically made them far more sophisticated and powerful. And so we are on a ramp up to what to the rest of the world looks like a significant upgrade in our nuclear arsenal at a time that we're trying to talk other countries into not doing that. And in the course of that, he decided not to adopt no for first use. He didn't take away one leg of the triad when I think a lot of people believe the land-based missiles, which are vulnerable, old, and run on 8-inch floppy disks, as Donald Trump points out. Um, By the way, for our listeners, I do want to point out Donald Trump's favorite journalist is David Sanger. He's mentioned him in how many eight speeches on the campaign Something trail? Something like that. Yeah. He said, you know, I have a relationship with David Sanger. He's really the exception that proves the rule at the New York Times. <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, and I see that we have amused Mishak here. <laughs> right. Um, the Prague thing, I think he, he – when he's building that set of carols for his library – I think that's going to be that's going to be a hard one to do the wording on the on the walls. Um, Oslo, uh, which was his acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize, the shocking part of that speech for the those who awarded the prize was that he spent much of it talking about the need sometimes for presidents to intervene militarily, and the shocking part here as we've gotten into this discussion was he passed up a few of those opportunities that I think, including on the red line that uh, many of us think he might have availed himself of without getting the U.S. into another Iraq war. And Russia and China, 
you know, they went into it thinking they were going to have a reset with the Russians, and we have what we have. They went into it thinking that Xi Jinping was going to be a technocrat who was going to put together a, a much more amenable China, and that certainly hasn't been the case. So it's uh, it's going to be a rough record. I think he gave a speech about the world as he sees it today, not the world that he was trying to change when he uh, became president in 2008, November of that year. And, you know, he has the right ideas. And I think it's important to remember uh, that he is a president who has 58% approval at the moment. And that, that means that he is doing something right in the view of his public, right, his constituency. 40% the, the, of Americans support Donald Trump. Sure. But 58% of, of Americans think that the president has has done a good job. And I think it's important to remember that that's also what President Obama probably has in mind when he's taken these approaches towards, uh, towards you know, international diplomacy and, and, and world affairs. But at the end of the day, what is important is that you back up your, your words with at least the projection of, of American power. And President Obama has often been reluctant to do that. And for him, it often seems to be an all in or nothing. It's either you intervene militarily and you send hundreds of thousands of troops or you don't do anything. And that's what a lot of people fault him for. But you know what I found interesting uh, to watch at the um, at the UN General Assembly is that the two presidential candidates were there too, holding their own meetings. And Donald Trump met with the president of Egypt. Uh, oh, yeah. Sisi. Tell me what you think of that meeting. And Hillary Clinton met with President Sisi as well, with uh, Poroshenko and with uh, Shinzo Abe from of, of Japan. And whereas President uh, Obama is being criticized for being too reluctant, of course, his successor, Hillary Clinton, uh, is a potential successor, and certainly he's hoping she'll be his, his successor, is seen as much more uh, willing to project uh, American power. And I think that it was a, a farewell speech by President Obama and uh, a dress rehearsal for, you know, his two potential successors. Well said, Sam. That was a really nice summary. I wish I had done that. Well, she works for the BBC, for God's sakes. That's, she does this for the world every day. They invented so, the language, too. They invented, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, but I just wanted a footnote. You know, we, I, no, but I want a footnote. Trump met with Sisi. And he called him... And he said he was a great guy. A great, guy. strong leader. Yeah. A great, it, strong leader. On the same day that a New Yorker piece came out, uh, where I believe one of Trump's, Mr. Trump's advisors is being quoted as saying Mr. Trump as president could ban anyone from the country, including Egyptians. Whereas in the meeting with President Sisi, Mr. Trump was speaking about how he had a lot of, you know, he was uh, open to, you know, peace-loving uh, Muslims, which which is a problematic way of phrasing well, also, these things know, the because Sisi... everyone is, is is supposedly, you know, we, we, should, we should accept that People, regardless of their religion, uh, are you know hopefully peace loving. And well, there's the, also the caveat is 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 problematic. There's also the issue of democracy loving, and I wouldn't say that Sisi is going to win any big awards as a champion of democracy. Um, and even some of his neighbors who are supporting him because they don't want the Muslim Brotherhood there recognize that Sisi has flaws, and so they don't give him these kind of fulsome endorsements. The only person I know who's given CC the same kind of fulsome endorsement that Trump did is Putin. Yeah. Wait, and wait, Hillary Clinton's David. campaign was was wait, wait, wait a second, David. Before you go far out on that limb, 
I want to know how carefully and conscientiously you have been watching Kim Jong-un's press releases, because maybe that's one that you missed. That's an excellent point. And I think Kim Jong-un would jump right in on the bandwagon of, <laughs> of, of the, you know, the pro 